0: Osteobytes, podcast and videos present the latest in osteosarcoma treatment, research, innovation, and hope each week. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Aaron Murphy, Associate Professor, Radiation Oncology at Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Murphy has a specialty in radiotherapy and radiosurgery for brain tumors and pediatric tumors. Our panelists today are MIB Junior Board President, Maeve Smart, and Junior Board Alumni, Ryan Kennington. I'm your host, Anne Graham, also an osteo-warrior and president of MIB Agents. Um, Welcome to Osteobites, everybody. Hope you have your snack. Let's go. It's season two. It starts now. We're super excited. I'm so excited that I brought veggie straws, which are neither veggies nor are they straws, but they are delicious. Um, I'll hit mute when I crunch on them because that's happening. Um, Today, we're very excited and honored to have Dr. Erin Murphy of Cleveland Clinic with us. She specializes in radiotherapy and radiosurgery in brain tumors and pediatric tumors. She has given many presentations and has multiple multiple publications on these topics. How we have not had her at factor, I don't know, but we're going to try to make up for that today. also, today we have an all Osteo Warrior panel with MIB Junior Board President Maeve Smart and Junior Board Alumni Ryan Kennington. And I'm your host, Ann Graham, also an Osteo Warrior and President of MIB Agents. MIB Agents is a leading pediatric osteosarcoma nonprofit dedicated to making it better for our community of patients, caregivers, doctors, and researchers. We have the goal of less toxic, more effective treatments, and a cure for this aggressive bone cancer. Our mission is in our name, MIB, Make It Better for Kids with Osteosarcoma. We make it better through direct patient and family support, education through our annual factor conference, OsteoBites, and our book, which is now available in Chinese and Spanish and available for free download on our website, or if you need actual copies, let us know. Um, If you would like to join our mission to make it better, you are most welcome to uh, whatever it is you do, do it for kids with osteosarcoma. We need whatever magic you have to improve the state of osteosarcoma. With that, someone who is improving it, Dr. Murphy, would you please get us started by introducing yourself?
1: Sure, hi everybody. I am honored to be here and already feel um, grateful to have met Anne and Maeve and Ryan who are awesome and I'm glad to be in this fight along with you guys. Um, happy to share this information and give this presentation. This is something that I'm very passionate about. I feel like radial surgery and SBRT are underutilized tools um, for these kinds of tumors um, and for younger people
2: in general. So um, happy to be here. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Maeve Smart. I am a two-time osteosarcoma survivor. I'm now six years, no evidence of disease. And I am from New York, but now in school at Boston, where I'm in my fourth year at Northeastern University. And as Anne said this year, I'll be the upcoming president of the junior board. And I'm so excited to be here today.
3: Hi, my name is Ryan. Uh, Six years ago, almost, I had osteosarcoma in the head of my femur. I had a limb cell linking surgery. Um, a year after I finished treatment, I had a metastasis in my lung and had that removed with that. And I am now almost five years, no evidence of disease. And I currently work uh, in the Schriftman lab as a full-time employee.
1: Today, um, we kind of grouped together Ewing's and osteosarcoma. Um, a lot of the data has combined these two tumors, although they're very different tumors. Um, but I'm gonna kind of share with you the, um, the data that we have thus far. And it just kind of shows up how much more we still need to do. I have no disclosures. So I'll first talk about in general, the benefits of radiosurgery and SBRT for younger patients in particular. Um, So with radiosurgery, the radiation is given in a one to five day procedure, which can reduce anesthesia needs for our younger kids. It has less impact on daily routine and education and a really quick recovery. Um, It can be done usually as a non-invasive or sometimes minimally invasive procedure. It utilizes focused high-dose radiation, which can spare normal tissue with a sharp dose fall-off, which can increase our biologic effectiveness. Um, You know, with sarcomas in general, we think of them not being as sensitive to radiation as other tumors, but giving in... this way with this really focused high dose radiation, we can kind of think of it as more like an ablative procedure. So almost um, as a a surgical tool where surgery can't be safely done. Um, Indications thus far have included unresectable disease, localized recurrent disease, oligometastatic disease, which is limited metastases. Um, There's an extensive availability and clinical experience, but most of that is is in the adult um, literature. So here's some background. As I said, there's limited SBRT data for these tumors. We do know though, that high biologically effective doses of radiation can increase control for sarcoma. Um, When we look back at some really old but useful data, when you look at pediatric patients who have limited metastases in the lung or bone, they can be considered curable with aggressive therapy Um, We know if lung metastases are not treated, they can be fatal usually within two years. So there's this huge international registry of lung metastases for both osteosarcoma and other soft tissue sarcomas. Um, And when they looked at metastatectomy, which means removing those metastases, um, you can see that patients had significant long-term survival, whereas if they didn't have those treatments, they wouldn't have done as well. Um, the Europeans have a nice um, collaborative analysis looking at 120 patients with metastatic healings. Um, in this group were patients that had metastases other than just lung. Um, and when you look at whether or not local treatment was given to, um, the, to nothing, the three-year event-free survival was about 15%. If local control, meaning either surgery or radiation, was given to either the primary or the metastasis, um, local control, the three-year event-free survival was roughly the same. However, I love pointing this out. So if you aggressively manage with some kind of local treatment, whether it's surgery or radiation, the primary tumor and the metastases it roughly doubles the three-year event-free survival. Um, We certainly know, you know, from this series they showed that the biggest benefit came from when patients had really limited disease. But even for patients with more than five tumors, they had a significant benefit to aggressive local management. Um, Therefore, I like to say that SBRT can have a significant impact on outcomes in patients who have unresectable oligometastatic disease. The data that's kind of driven our current dosing and our current thoughts for radiosurgery for these tumors, comes from this small um, institutional series from the Mayo Clinic. This included 14 patients in which 27 lesions were treated. And um, you can see they included Ewing's or osteosarcoma patients. Um, Median age was 24. Six patients were less than 18 years of age. And you can see they treated at a wide variety of locations. Um, the median dose was what we call 40 gray. It was given over one to ten fractions or one to ten treatments. However, these patients really received a, a wide range of dosing. Um, they used kind of our standard physics normal tissue constraints, and we're a little bit more thoughtful about it if if patients were getting uh, chemotherapy or if they were younger. Um, what we see here is just kind of the margins and how they designed their um, the size of the target. When they looked at the, after a two-year median follow-up, they found that the local control for patients that had lesions treated with a definitive intent was on the order of 85%, which is pretty good. Um, They found two failures were in the patients who had um, metastatic osteosarcoma, and they were treated with a regimen of 30 gray in three fractions, which is actually a pretty standard regimen for um, bone metastases from other kinds of cancers, but I think it speaks to the fact that um, osteosarcoma requires more radiation dose, right? That's why up front, when, you, when when folks are first diagnosed, they usually don't even meet with a radiation oncologist, right? So it's usually just chemo and, and surgery, um, but I think it's a matter of just getting enough dose and getting it in safely. Um, you can see here, we have to be really thoughtful though when we give these high doses of radiation. So Um, One person had like esophagitis or soreness with swallowing and a pain flare, Um, but then three patients had significant late toxicity. So um, these are things that can be seen anywhere from months to years after the treatment. Um, When we think about toxicity, we we grade it by how severe it is. So these grade threes mean that patients needed um, some significant treatment to help with these side effects. Um, so, so you can see, though, these, these patients oftentimes had prior treatment with radiation. Um, this one, one person had 60 gray in 10 fractions, which is a lot of dose of radiation, and then an additional, like, almost 60 gray um, to the same area, and certainly you'd um, be really worried about developing toxicity um, with this kind of combination of doses. Um, Also, so one patient had like breakdown of their muscle, and this was when they got 50 gray and five fractions. This was with concurrent gemcitabine. So gemcitabine is a medication that's um, often used for folks with metastatic sarcoma, and it can do two things with radiation. So it can sensitize um, tumors to the radiation, but it also can... Um, cause more toxicity because they work so synergistically. So it's always important for for us to communicate well with each other um, on the multidisciplinary treatment team to make sure we're thoughtful about like sequencing the timing of the therapies. Um, And then this is another person had a pathologic fracture to the um, head of the femur. Um, This it's, these are, you know, there's nothing, there's, you know, nothing against the folks that were doing this, right, because this is new, and it's, you got to start somewhere, but that's what's hard, is it's so, um, it's exciting to do these high doses of radiation, but it's also really challenging, because we're kind of still at the, at the time when we're learning about it. There have been two sarcoma trials that incorporated this SBRT into their treatment regimens, um, and so the recently clued um, closed Ewing sarcoma trial actually incorporated using SBRT to all sites of initially metastatic disease. So this is very aggressive local control. um, With SBRT, so they limited um, the targets to be less than five centimeters in size. Why that is, is because you're giving this high high dose in, in a few fractions, and it's not always safe to treat large areas with those high doses. We still don't have the results yet from this trial. It wasn't a question on the trial, but more looking to see if it was feasible and doable. So they're collecting information on it. And then this other phase two trial was actually recently published in November of the of, I was gonna say this year, but November of last year, 2020. Um, And they um, looked after patients that had um, Mets to Bony sites. Um, from sarcoma, but they also include other kinds of diagnoses. Um, And what they found was actually that the local control at one year was 75%. And so they kind of proposed that as a baseline for subsequent studies to be compared back to um, this kind of a dosing regimen. I'll share with you our um, our early series. So I feel like this was a lot to learn from these um, patients that we looked after. So this is looking specifically at patients um, who are adolescent and young adult ages and looking just at doing this radiosurgery to the spine. Um, so not, not huge numbers. This is um, published. You can see it. Um, Parasite right there is the first author. So she was one of our awesome residents that has now graduated and moved on. Um, but you can see, you know, just a total of seven patients and 11 lesions treated from this early series. And um, we had about one year of follow-up The median dose used was 35 gray in five fractions, but again, a wide variety of dosing regimens were used. Um, We did see three local failures, which I'll share in more detail with you. We did not have any um, high-grade acute toxicity. There was one late grade three toxicity, which I'll also share the details with you guys about. What you see on the kind of the right side of the screen is a very um, simple target for radiosurgery. So this is an axial um, scan cut cut through the patient kind of midway through the body looking at, you know, the white is bone. Um, And so this is a vertebral body here. And then the spinal cord, you know, runs in and out through here. And so the main goal of doing this radiosurgery is to give the dose to just the target, but carve the dose away and around the um, critical normal structures like the spinal cord. And in a, in a, case like this, we can see the vertebral body. There's a lot of, in our, in our world, this is a lot of space in between the target and the spinal cord. Um, but unfortunately, um, most, most images and most targets don't end up being this simple. This is a, a table of the folks that we looked after. And what I'll just draw your attention to is um, in the box are the patients that then had progression after this treatment. And you can see that when we look back at these patients that some the ones who failed had what we call paraspinal extension or posterior element disease. That means that they had um, tumors involving the um, vertebral body, but also went kind of beyond, beyond that area. So they tended to be larger size volumes. You can see, so PTV is what we call our planning target volume, and this is in cubic centimeters. So you can see two of these lesions were on the large sides. Um, we saw these failures in both Ewing's and osteosarcoma. You can see that different doses were used. Um, And when we think about local failure, we kind of think about the location of it, whether it was directly within the field of radiation or kind of on the side, that's what marginal means, kind of on the margin of the treatment field. And you can see we saw these failures at six to nine months after the treatment. This is an example of a young man who was treated upfront for um, Ewing's. He had his chemotherapy, and then he had 45 Gray and 25 fractions with conventional radiation, which would be the appropriate kind of standard of care. Um, he failed and had progression at that primary site a year and a half after his initial course of radiation. Um, What you're seeing here is kind of zoomed in on the area of the target, so you can see this is the vertebral body. It's kind of been eaten away, and all of this is his tumor. Um, What you're looking at here is the 18-grade isodose line is the radiation treatment volume, so you can see how nice and tight and conformal that is to that target. Right in here is the area that we're trying to spare, so these little dots are actually kind of the nerve roots, wanted to carve and push the dose away from that area. He got um, ice chemotherapy right after this, and then he was received gemcitabine and docetaxel. So he had pretty intense chemotherapy after this repeat radiation. And then six months later, unfortunately, he failed in the field of radiation with um, both paraspinal and this disease that's kind of pushing even closer to the nerve roots. Um, Unfortunately, he developed four months later, he developed um, an enteritis, which is kind of inflammation of the bowel. Um, so it was a pretty significant side effect. And I think it's probably due to all of the above. Um, so he had, you know, aggressive re-irradiation and he had chemotherapy that was pretty intense. And so it just speaks to us making sure that we're being really thoughtful when we're um, giving subsequent therapies. Um, now for this, so this, as you can see this, so this was treated in one high dose, so one fraction of radiation. And these days we usually don't deliver that. So we, we would give it more divided out. So sometimes for larger tumors, we divide them out into over five sessions. What that does is that allows it to be a little bit gentler on the normal tissues. Um, so that's, that's more common practice these days as we would do like a five fraction regimen. Here's another example. So this is an awesome 15-year-old young woman who had osteosarcoma of the femur. Um, initially metastatic to the lung, she got her standard MAP chemotherapy and then received limb salvage surgery. Um, she presented three years later with this huge sacral metastasis. Um, so you can see um, on this in this left screen here. So this green is the area of the target, and then you see all these different colors. So What I'd like to point out. So, what's drawn here in this purple and the pink is where the nerve roots are. You can see part of it going out there. Um, And then the other colors represent the radiation isodose line. So, um, the prescription dose was this 35 Gray in five fractions, and that's this yellow color. So you can see this yellow going, you know, really tight around the green, but you can see how it's kind of holed out because we were prioritizing trying to meet the normal tissue constraints. You can see how that radiation dose kind of carves out from that nerve root there and carves out from this nerve root here and it carves really out from this nerve root here. Um, So it gives us really what we call heterogeneous tumor coverage. Um, What you see here also, so you can see um, this orange volume in here and even a red volume. So that's higher dose. We can make it really hot within the tumor, which is one of the benefits of doing these kind of SBRT approaches. Um, So just for everybody out there, um, whenever you're looking at radiation plans or radiation prescriptions, the prescription doesn't always tell the whole story. Um, So this was still aggressive, but we were certainly prioritizing trying to meet these normal tissue constraints. Um, She did awesome with the treatment and two weeks after the SBRT, she had this grade two dermatitis. You can kind of see like a little bit of um, darkening of her skin, a little bit of redness. She recovered great from that. The PET CT five months after this treatment looked awesome, right? So, no SUV uptake on the PET scan. And then, unfortunately, um, so this panel goes back to her um, initial MRI, and then this was the MRI at recurrence. So, nine months later, you can see she has this tumor that's kind of right in here, pressing up against the area where the nerve roots are. it was avid on the PET scan, so it's right here. So it's this kind of dark gray area that I'm circling out. What you can see in this area is actually where this is the radiation isodose lines. So those are the radiation isodose lines and you can see where she was treated. She had like um, inflammation of the muscles, which is very normal to see that. And hers was not symptomatic at all. Um, So then what what we did here was kind of draw out, this was the recurrent tumor. And this was her salvage radiosurgery treatment. So we were able to give a really focused high-dose radiosurgery treatment right to that tumor. Um, And now she's, gosh, now she's even more than three years out from this procedure and doing really, really well. Um, So this brings up an important discussion, I think. So when we're when I'm meeting folks and talking about the risks and benefits of these treatments, it, you know, it turned out that sometimes we might need to thoughtfully kind of push the limits beyond the normal tissues, right? Because sometimes if we aren't aggressive enough, something like this can happen, right? And it can make it even harder to treat. Um, so sometimes it's, it, there are tough discussions with folks saying, you know, if, if we don't, if we're not aggressive, the tumor might cause more problems, right? Um, and I think as we get better and better at doing these kind of treatments, um, we're getting more comfortable with being more aggressive as well. So I I share these. I think you can learn learn a lot from the ones that didn't do as well as we would like to, right? Um, And so that's why I like to share these at meetings um, to help help guide others as they're developing these radiosurgery programs. Um, So this is looking at, this is a table of sarcoma spine radiosurgery. So this is looking at a lot of what we call like single institution retrospective reviews and experiences in folks looking after metastatic sarcomas with radiosurgery. Um, you can see when, when they're looking after patients, again, they, they group together a lot of different um, histologies, right? Um, and you can see a wide variety of radiosurgery doses. Um, I have this box around the, the two series that kind of had the worst local control meaning stopping those tumors from growing. So most of the local control is pretty decent around 75 up to 96% of the time. These ones were on the lower end. And what I'd like to point out is that these two were treated with single fraction radiosurgery. Um, and when we think about um, radiosurgery, it's, it's kind of hard to do the calculations of, of exactly what that dose means. If you get, gave it over like a standard co- course of radiation, um, but you can see when you, when you do a, a calculation that these, this 16 gray in a single fraction, this is called the EQD2, or equivalent dose given at 2 gray per fraction, it's just 35 gray, right? And then we know most sarcomas, if you're treating definitively, need, need on the order of 50 or 60 gray plus to stop those tumors from growing. Um, however, if you do a higher dose in a single fraction, then you can get up to pretty good EQD2s um, and get, get better local control. This so I'll share with you actually. So this is our, um, our series of looking after folks and treating multiple sites of SBRT for younger patients with metastatic sarcoma. Um, so we have a really large series of looking after these patients um, together with my, my colleagues who are gonna who give the chemotherapy and systemic agents. Um, so this, this series looked at us, um, treating 88 targets all together. You can see just like those other series, we grouped together, um, a bunch of different sarcoma histologies. Um, what we treated mostly were bony lesions and some in the lung, some soft tissue and one in the liver. Um, the median age of folks when we treated them was 18 and the median KPS, which is the performance status meaning how well are these folks doing, was 90. So folks were doing really, really well. So in general, when we looked at our median treatment dose, this was 30 gray in five fractions. Um, We're certainly tending to be more aggressive these days as we've gotten more um, comfortable with seeing folks through these treatments and seeing folks do really well with these treatments. Um, So patients were treated median of two areas, but up to 14 areas and counting in some folks. Um, this is the target size, so you can see it was a pretty decent target size. Um, more than half of these patients were treated with what we call concurrent systemic therapy or chemotherapy at the same time of the radiosurgery. This was a, came from like earlier presentation, so it was just seven, seven months of follow-up. Um, and you can see with the survival that we need to keep doing better, because um, that was just at six months. What I'd like to point out when I share this series is that these folks were heavily pre-treated with a lot of chemotherapy um, before they would even come to me for consideration of this local tools. Um, What that means is that the tumors may not respond as well. They have become resistant to more more standard therapies. Um, And the median time from the development of the local recurrence or the metastatic disease to the time of doing this focused high-dose radiation was about 19 months. Um, I think, and I'm blessed blessed with my colleagues here that they often think of looping me in early on when we're meeting new folks with metastatic disease. Um, I think that certainly considering pulling the trigger for for this um, aggressive local treatment might make sense for a lot of people to do it earlier in the kind of relapse setting. This, so we, we looked at um, our local control. So what was our ability to stop these tumors from growing and what was the pattern of failure? Um, so we looked at about 60 of these patients and assessed them for um, how they had progressed. Um, again, I had told you about what infield meant kind of the majority of the recurrence within the radiation dose volume and marginal is, is kind of part, part in, part out. So of the 10 local failures that we saw, six of them were kind of right within the radiation field and four were on the side. Um, what I think that speaks to is us needing to do more, right? Whether it's more dose of radiation or including the right agents that might help us get the most out of these tools. Um, so there's a lot of ways that we can do to kind of even improve these local controls. Um, but the local control was, was pretty good at um, upwards of 88% at six months, and it kind of persisted for a year. But this is something interesting that we've seen with these higher dose per fraction. Um, so, this, this case isn't really SBRT because it's um, SBRT is when you give like this focus high dose radiation but this was someone who had um, metastatic osteosarcoma. And unfortunately, when I was looking after him, he had kind of multiple areas of the bone that were causing pain. Um, We were still kind of aggressive with the radiation dose to try to give him some durable pain relief. But you can see, so he has what we think was what we call radiation recall. So what you can see here is you can see kind of the skin changes that you would think come with like acute toxicity that can come during radiation or, or, you know, and linger a week or two after. But these skin changes came up two months after he was done with the SBRT or with his radiation treatment. He was receiving this chemotherapy regimen of paclitaxel, gemcitabine, and bevacizumab at that time. So sometimes these agents can, we, we call a recall reaction, recall the radiation right where it was given. Um, oftentimes this responds really well to just conservative management with like steroids um, and gets better. In a, in a different patient, he presented with myositis, so that means inflammation of the muscles about seven months after the SBRT, while he was getting Iphospamide and, and mesna. So he um, they were worried because he came back and he had this PET scan and he was kind of sore in the muscles, and so they were worried that it was tumor progression. But um, fortunately in his case, it wasn't tumor progression. It was just like this recall reaction where you get like acute inflammation in the areas where he had prior radiation. So what what you're seeing here is this is where he was treated with the radiation. And it just is the same areas where those muscles were lighting up. So just kind of an important thing to keep in mind that I feel like we're seeing more of these higher doses. When we looked at the toxicity, meaning what, what side effects were we causing the folks that we were treating with these higher doses, Um, seven patients had what we call grade two toxicities. So mild toxicities that we expect people to recover from. So it was dermatitis, which is kind of, you know, inflammation or skin changes, some nausea, some pain flare. So pain flare is something that's kind of um, seen also with these high dose in limited fractions where, because it can almost cause an acute inflammation. um, If someone comes to us and they have a a bony lesion that's causing pain, then they're at risk for us to causing this pain flare. It's just really related to that acute inflammation. It can happen usually within two days even from the treatment. And so we always tell everybody about that. And the blessing is, is that also responds really well to just a court, short course of steroid medication. Um, one patient ended up getting pneumonitis or kind of inflammation of the lungs that um, they recovered well from. There was no significant acute grade three toxicity. Um, we did have one patient that developed pain um, in his sacrum where we did the radio surgery too. And it, it wasn't tumor failure. It didn't look um, avid on, on the scans, but he was treated with a sacroplasty and then his pain had responded to that. So I, I, sh- I share this information just because, again, we're, we're still learning. We want to get a sense of like guidelines and that we can share with each other to how to, how to best utilize these tools, but to do them safely. Um, So this was an an experience from London, and they looked at patients who had a wide variety of diagnoses but who were getting these high doses of radiation. And this this cranial means within the brain, the radiosurgery, and you can see within the brain as compared to outside of the brain, um, the late toxicity was much higher in the brain. Um, And this just kind of gives a guide of that we found that if they had a cumulative biologic effective dose of greater than 200 gray, which is a lot of radiation dose, um, then they had a higher probability of experiencing late toxicity. So this is the kind of information that we're still kind of working on as a community to to understand better and then to share with each other so that we can um, share these best practices. This is just another example. So besides, besides bone metastases or spine metastases, we can do radiosurgery to many areas of the body. Um, Lung radiosurgery or lung SBRT or SABR is another word, all for the same thing of giving this focus. High-dose radiation has been done for a long time. There's a lot of experience, but in a very different setting. So um, in folks that have like a primary lung cancer with an early stage lung cancer. This is where a lot of our information and our safety data comes um, from doing this high dose focused radiation to the lungs. Um, So this is showing an example of a 15 year old girl who had metastatic osteosarcoma. Um, She had, as you see here, um, this growing PET-AVID nodule. Um, She had undergone multiple prior thoracotomies, which is certainly still kind of our gold standard. Um, but she now wanted to focus on continuous school and chemotherapy and with switching chemotherapies. And so we um, aggressively treated her with what we call lung SBRT. So you can see this is the target focus target. What you're seeing here actually is a like a demonstration of how those beams were aimed um, and how they rotate around the body. So this is what we call a VMAT, or it's a, a technique of intensity modulated radiation therapy. We also call it arc therapy because it rotates the, the head of the machine rotates around the um, patient's fatty. What's so cool is all these beams are showing you where the radiation um, is entering from. So you can see what I like to tell people is that if this is the target. At every four degrees, you can kind of modulate the dose or keep the dose away from more critical structures and bring it right back. So that re- results in a nice, tight, conformal um, radiation treatment plan. And then you see here the PET-CT that she had five months after that treatment. You can see, gosh, what happened? It looks bigger. But that's just, it forms almost like a local scar in that area um, and very normal for us to see see that. But it was no longer um, PET-AVID. And here's an example of a non-spine bone metastasis treated with SBRT. Um, So this is a patient of ours who had metastatic Ewing sarcoma. And he was actually found for this bump on his head for a while and he had like a um, something benign on the other side. So they thought this was the same thing, but it had grown um, and you can see. So this is his um, brain MRI. You can see his eyes looking up here. This is the back part of his head and this is the mass. So it had grown from the bones of his skull and it grew both into the brain and outside of the brain. Um, we were able to treat this with 30 gray in four fractions and saw a dramatic response. So this is just two months after that radio surgery, and this is at the same level of his brain. And then this was a durable local control. Now it's been probably about two and a half years after this treatment and it's not, not come back. This is just a picture. So this is another way to do radiation. So these are kind of multiple arcs, all aiming at the same area to get this nice tight conformal treatment. And again, you can see that the dose gets hot kind of right in the middle. So this is an experience that that we reported along with Dr. Anderson um, of using radium for metastatic osteosarcoma. So this this series looked at um, 14 folks who had metastatic osteosarcoma, and they had a technetium bone scan that showed that their cancer was forming bone. And... um, Radium is an alpha-emitting calcium analog. Um, it's often used in combination with other agents. But because it's almost like the same shape or size of calcium, it goes to where bone bones are being made. Um, and so it brings like this radioactive source right to where those bones are being made. Um, for these folks, we looked at SBRT, if it was given or not, and kind of the impact and how those folks did. And so SBRT, so focused high-dose radiation was given to 10 patients kind of at the same time or right after the radium or or at both periods of time. And this is just just an interesting kind of early finding, still hypothesis generating, but we saw a significant increase in overall survival in those folks that actually received the SBRT as compared to those that did not receive the SBRT. But again, small numbers, um, but something that, you know, we hope to find more of. So this is kind of my summary slide. So thinking about sarcoma, radial surgery, and SPRT, what have we learned so far? Um, we certainly learned that this can be challenging, not challenging patients, but challenging clinical um, situations for when we, when we meet folks who've had multiple prior therapies. Folks are often, unfortunately, rarely oligometastatic. Um, they can have multiple sites of tumor. What we're finding certainly is durable or lasting local control is possible. Um, we're finding that these treatments are well tolerated as long as we are really thoughtful about concurrent therapies and the total cumulative dose if they've had prior radiation. Um, we do not yet know ideal dose or fractionation schemes and we need more studies to understand this better. Um, We're actually looking at this from our own series and hope to find some um, information to help guide others as they're developing their SBRT and radiosurgery programs. Um, I think it's going to show that we need higher doses for tumors like osteosarcoma. Certainly, a multidisciplinary team is critical to identify appropriate patients and to incorporate these aggressive local treatments into the overall treatment plan with the goal of improved outcomes, but while maintaining quality of life. With that, I want to thank you. I want to thank all the patients that I've been able to look after and that have taught me many things. And I want to thank all the awesome colleagues and the team team that I work with here um, who help make this all possible and help do it in a um, thoughtful
0: and safe manner. Wow. Um, Really incredible data and and work you're doing. How many other centers are are doing this? And I mean, you know, your your final your final statement on that on that slide that a multidisciplinary team is is critical, and of course the equipment is critical. So that that really narrows down the places someone can go for this sort of treatment. Um, so,
1: so yeah, so it's, it's, it's being done. So I've got a lot of great colleagues in um, radiation oncology and in you know, pediatric radiation oncology that are um, doing these SBR treat, treatments. But there's um, a lot of folks in the general oncology community are wary of doing it. They're wary of um, doing these high doses um, in general outside of comfort zones. You know, we're used, to, we have lots of data. Doing spine-specific radio surgery, but not a lot of data of looking after non-spine bone metastases. Mm -hmm. A lot of data of lung doing lung SBRT. Um, One of the things I'm I'm blessed to be a part of here is this awesome our awesome department where I have colleagues that are experts in lung SBRT and colleagues that are experts in in spine radial surgery and you know writing all the trials and publishing the data and. Um, So we have a robust team here, including like the physicists and the nurses and the dosimetrists and the therapists. So it takes a really um, awesome, high qualified team to do these treatments and to do them safely because it can be risky, right? When you're giving these high doses and single fractions. Um, But there's, um, so, you know, we're, we're happy and we're, we're always happy to, to, to guide folks and to share information, um, which I think is so important if, if folks aren't comfortable doing it, but patients just can't always travel, right? Um, and so to guide folks of how, how it can be done safely or, um, or to get, get people where they need to be for these kind of treatments.
2: I have two quick questions. Um, so if radiation is often more effective with chemo, which chemo can be used with SBRT?
1: So we're still learning that. That's an awesome question, Maeve. Um, it's something that, um, again, we want to be really thoughtful about um, we've actually looked at our series of using, so you saw that radium-223 has been given. Um, also, the, um, we've looked at a series of um, which is, which is an agent that's also given a lot for the sending of metastatic sarcoma and it's a pretty well tolerated medication. Um, you know, we've, we know that the pazopanib alone is safe um, sometimes we get concerned that when you're giving these um, like VEGF agents, that you can be um, see more toxicity when you give high dose radiation with some VEGF agents, a common ones like bevacizumab. Um, but the blessing is, as we we saw in looking after um, many patients with concurrent pazopanib, that it seems to be well tolerated, which is nice, right? Because it's it's so hard, you know. My tool is a local tool, right? And when folks come to me, and they often come with metastatic disease, you know that the cancer had spread from where it initially started. So you know you might be dealing with microscopic disease. So it can almost be scary for folks to stop their systemic therapies, right? Um, And so that's why I think it's really important to find ones that can be done and done safely um, or or to minimize breaks from one to the next.
3: I have a question. Um, Radiation, especially SBRT, is so much more precise than it used to be. How did this change AP uh, slash PA versus conformal versus image guidance and SBRT and SSRT? Yeah,
1: Um, so great question, Ryan. So um, radiation in general has changed in many ways. um, And I always feel like we're blessed by these improvements in technology. And we have a ton of tools at our disposal. And oftentimes it's just picking the right tool for the right clinical situation. Um, But radiation has really advanced in that we're able to deliver these focused high-dose radiation in using things like daily image guidance. So often what we do is um, when when we get someone set up on the treatment table, we take a quick picture, whether it's an x-ray or a quick CT scan, to make sure, sure someone's lined up exactly how we set them up at the time of planning before we go ahead and turn the radiation beam on. Other things that have allowed us to be sort of so focused is improvements in what we call immobilization devices. So you know, simulation is the time when patient comes and kind of gets set up and we do a CT scan and we have these um, devices that help either hold someone still for the treatment so that when they come back for the treatment, they're again exactly where they need to be. Um, and what's also awesome is the technology of the treatment delivery has improved so much. So, um the old kind of what we call um imrt or intensity modulated radiation was like if this was the target you'd aim a beam then move the machine then aim the beam then the machine would move, aim the beam and so it was much longer on the treatment table but now because of this these kind of arc therapies and different kind of treatment machines it goes so quickly where folks time in the table is just like 10 or 15 minutes and the time of the radiation beam is on is just a few minutes um so it's 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 something that we're really blessed that things keep getting better and better.
2: Another quick question. Um, so radiation is of course a good thing to do to tumors. We wanna kill tumor cells, not normal cells um, or the innocent bystanders. So I'm wondering, you talked about, of course, finding the right dose is a balance and you can get that hot spot right in the center. So is it possible to give like a really high dose right in the center and then a smaller, more standard dose um, on the rim and the surrounding tissues just to avoid that geographic miss?
1: It sure is. So that's a very, um, very great question. So that's one of the benefits of doing this focused high dose radiation rate right? is you can really, because you're using multiple beams, right? And we think of it like a thin flashlight where they're shining down and where they meet in the middle is the cumulative area where you get that high dose. And so you can really push the dose in the middle and kind of carve and keep the dose nice and tight with what we call a quick dose fall off. So the normal tissues aren't getting much of that radiation dose.
0: Great. I have a question for you from Dr. Flesner, uh, who says, uh, thank you, Dr. Murphy. Got on a bit late, hope I didn't miss this, but wondering what your experience was with biophosphonates and SBRT or palliative RT for non-surgical cases. We're using zoledronate 24 hours prior to coarse fractions of RT and have had some nice in vitro and in vivo data supporting some potential synergism? This is in dogs at Mizzou. Thanks. Thanks for that question. Um, so I think those agents certainly
1: can be considered. You know, I typically my um, medical oncology colleagues are the ones who are managing and offering those medications. Um, but I, I, um, I agree that there's, so sometimes the, the tools that we use, SBRT and radiosurgery are not always appropriate, right? And some palliative radiation mix a lot of sense right um and and the blessing is is that you can um you can often help help people you can help people with um pain you can help people with breathing issues um and so that's why you know i i often get the question um is it sad but i don't think it's sad Um, i feel like we always have something to offer folks um which is which is which is nice
2: We also have a question from Christina Iptoma. She said, thank you, great presentation. We generally get the sense from our oncology team that radiation is used sparingly, particularly in the lung. But if there are multiple bone site mets, does it make sense to try to use SBRT on each to achieve local control is, if treatable? Is there harm slash toxicity limit to treating multiple bone met sites or is it better to be aggressive in treating these sites earlier versus later in a more palliative setting?
1: So yeah, a great great question. So each, each um, person presents with their own kind of unique story and unique pattern and what they've already been through, right? So we incorporate all of that into our thought process and into our radiation recommendations. Um, if someone's, you know, progressing and have symptoms on a chemotherapy, then I think that's clear that you need to pull the trigger for some local control to try to help those symptoms. But if someone's doing really well on chemotherapy, even if they have multiple mets, sometimes I like to wait and see if the chemotherapy responds. And then that sometimes helps guide us of, um, how aggressive we should be or which sites need our local tools. Um, you know I like to share that we we look after people who have a lot of what we call oligo progression. I mean they're doing great they're on a chemo regimen but they have just one spot that's just not responding and then that's pretty clear to us and easy to kind of pull the trigger to treat that lesion um, And so it, it, it always depends on the um, on what's going on at the time but I do feel like treating multiple areas seems to be really well tolerated so how I've done it sometimes is, um, you know, in, in folks who present upfront with metastatic disease, and I'm doing kind of consolidative radiation. Um, this is often more in the setting of viewings. Um, I'll like map out two or three areas, treat those while I'm mapping out the next set of areas, then treat those. And folks amaze me with how well they get through these treatments. And so that's a, um, a big part of this and a big word that I want to get out about this is that multiple site can be really well tolerated if it's done in a thoughtful manner. Um, now you do have to, you can't treat the whole body, right, with radiation, especially with high dose radiation. And certainly um, you want to be really thoughtful about how much marrow you're including in the treatment field too, because um, we know you guys need your marrow, right? You need um, to be able to tolerate systemic therapies. Um, It's one of the bonuses of using this focus treatment is that it just treats kind of where the tumor is, right? And oftentimes if the tumor is occupying that part of the bone, that that part of the bone isn't producing much of the marrow anyway. So you're not gonna cause much harm with counts or that kind of thing. But you can imagine if you have to treat large fields of radiation, you can cause more more harm to the marrow and more side effects.
3: Okay, I have another question. Um, So in terms of how radiation can enhance immunotherapy, there any learning to date on how to best capitalize on the synergy and how to best sequence it?
0: So
1: That is a great question. And that's a question that um, I'm passionate about finding more answers to. Um, We don't have that information yet. Um, We're, we're blessed to have this awesome kind of new immuno-oncology center and Dr. Tim Chan, who's leading that and has, um, um, a lot of resources that we're gonna um, pair with for writing some clinical trials to try to understand these things better. Um, We don't know yet. Um, We found some really interesting information from our own database that we're gonna be sharing at our upcoming radiation oncology meeting where we actually find like simple labs that kind of give an impression of immune therapy like um, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio or albumin levels, those kinds of things. If you look at those before or after SBRT, and if you look at those for patients who had their disease controlled versus not controlled, you can see significant differences. And so it's really interesting and kind of just at the the time of still hypothesis generating, right? Because that's always my question is when would be the best time to pull these triggers, right? Um, But we're, so we're still, we're still learning. Um, There's a lot more to, a lot more to go with that.
2: We have some fast fire questions. So what other profession would you like to attempt?
1: Oh, what did I say? I always say a cake decorator, although I feel like I'm not that creative. but I just feel like that would be really fun. And it would be (laughs) stressful. We do a lot of um, baking and decorating cookies at home. We did a lot of that over this holiday season. And we make a lot of messes but have a lot of fun while we're doing it and then no one ends up eating the gingerbread stuff. <laughs> I'm the only one. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that's my, de- that's usually my default answer is a cake decorator and not many people know that.
0: <laughs> your family and my family need to get together because we will happily eat them.
2: Right. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, what was your first job?
1: Lifeguard. Um, Great. So it was the, like one of the best jobs in the world because uh, me and all my friends did it and we would just ride our bikes to the pool and be there all day and it wasn't hard and even when I was in med school they even let me come back and be the manager but that just meant I got to sit there and study I didn't do anything but they let me work there so I, I early on when I was um a resident here I remember like running the folks that still thought of me as the lifeguard but they didn't recognize me as well without my red suit on. <laughs>
2: Um, what is your favorite snack? Oh, I probably said peppermint panties. That's a great one. Um, what do you hope for?
1: Oh, I, I hope for a lot of things. Um, I hope to make things better for my patients. I hope to be the best mom and sister and wife and friend that I can be. Um, I, um, you know, pray every day that we can make things better. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful to be doing what I'm doing. I feel like, um, it's a calling and um, I'm glad I'm able to do it.
2: Thank you for sharing. And what superpower would you choose? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Um,
1: to make world peace really easy. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a good one. (laughs)
3: All right, I have five more quick questions for you. Uh, What inspired you to be a researcher?
1: Uh, um, The need to do better, the need to keep learning and collaborating with colleagues. And um, it's something that keeps me motivated, keeps me enthusiastic and um, keeps the drive going forward to do more things. I'm really excited Um, every time I'm like meeting with colleagues or um research scientists, or with med students and residents that I'm working with. Um, I love it, keeps me going. I just wish I had more time
3: what What inspires you now?
1: Um my patience.
3: What is your favorite word?
1: My favorite what word. <laughs> I have a phrase that I'm that is going to be I've been thinking about it being like focus and putting it up all over my house um, because I think it's always the right choice. So I'm going to plaster my house with signs that says choose love. Um, I got a bunch from Amazon coming already, so um, maybe not a word, but a phrase choose love.
3: What do you need to accomplish your work?
1: Hmm. Time. (laughs) Time, um, resources, and um, but I think um, what's great is, is every time I have a meeting set aside to um, learn more or keep projects going forward, it, it just keeps it going forward, right? So as long as you're putting one step ahead of the next, you're making some progress.
3: And finally, would you rather repeat high school or med school?
1: a great time in med school i i loved it um it was very different i was very um i had a lot going on in, in undergrad because i was running track and field and so i had like zero time but i feel like med school was, was a lot of downtime <laughs> so um
0: i really enjoyed it Thank okay you. i have a late breaking question and then we gotta we're in overtime we gotta wrap it up um, Leslie Peterson says thank you for this wonderfully informative presentation. Can you please say more about the use of radium-223? How is it given? What results have been seen? Uh, If it's given without SBRT and have good results been seen when it's used in conjunction with other systemic therapies? So this is
1: someone who came to us with a lot of pain. Um, and just can show sometimes the dramatic response of the radium. So this is someone who had what we call two numerous to count bone metastases. Um, she had just one cycle of the radium. She had previously had a lot of chemotherapy and had this massive progression. Um, she, you, you, you use certain imaging studies to, to show whether or not the tumors are making bone to make them to see if someone's a candidate for the radium. Um, and you can see that she had a dramatic response, um, after just one cycle and she was able to, um, walk again, she had so much pain, she couldn't walk, right? So it just shows, it's a pretty striking example of, um, the responses that can be seen. And, you know, not everybody gets this response, right? Um, but it's something that, um, can be seen and the radiums can be often given with other chemotherapy agents and like, like you saw there, SBRT when, when appropriate.
0: Um, Dr. Murphy is, is happy to um, be emailed as well. So if you missed your email address, you can just email us at anne at mibagents.org or info at mibagents.org and we'll get your message or, or, uh, to Dr. Murphy or we'll just share Dr. Murphy's email. Thank you for that, Dr. Murphy. Um, okay, so uh, final things, RFP is now open. For the fifth year in a row, MIB Agents is awarding a $100,000 research grant to a project that will focus on moving research forward for osteosarcoma. To submit a proposal, visit mibagents.org forward slash outsmarting osteosarcoma. This is, um, gosh, osteobite season two, episode one is done. We now have, um, which this will be a part of, a comprehensive library of great osteosarcoma researchers, research, physicians, innovators, and hope on YouTube. Um, Also on our podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcast, just look for Osteobytes. We have a full schedule for the new year with so many great osteosarcoma experts to hear from. This month alone, we've got Dr. Murphy, clearly awesomeness, Um, Dr. Alejandro Sweet Cordero next week, Dr. Pete Anderson, and Dr. Laura Randall rounding out the our first month back um, with season two. So looking forward to all of that. Um, Thanks everybody for joining us today and thanks to our guest Dr. Murphy for your work and for your care of, of osteosarcoma patients and all of your patients and for being with us today and to our panelists Maeve and Ryan. Thanks everybody and we'll see you next week. Next week, Osteobytes welcomes Dr. Alejandro Sweet Cordero, Professor of Pediatrics, Director of Molecular Oncology Initiative at Benioff UCSF. We'll be talking about genome-informed targeted therapies for osteosarcoma. Hope you join us. Be sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can view our library of this and all Osteobytes topics and rockstar speakers. You can also listen to Osteobytes via podcast wherever you get your podcast.